So we started last Sunday by reading scripture. I know weeks come and go and you're like, what happened last week? Last Sunday we started with reading a bunch of Old Testament scripture. Um, and we're going to do the same thing this morning. Last week we focused on what does the law say about adultery. This morning, this week, we're going to focus on the concept of light. What does light represent in the Bible? How does light as a metaphor, explain God to us. And so far in our study of John's gospel, we've already seen John use that metaphor like seven times. So this is, this is not new, and we're going to go back and look at those. But first, I want you to sort of join me in a, in a look. Uh, we'll journey into the Old Testament to see exactly what this concept of light is. How is God described as light? So let's start with Psalm 27.1, such an important verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If he's our light and our salvation, we have nothing to fear, right? Because he's sovereign and powerful and good. Amen? Psalm 36.9, with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. We've seen a lot of John already just recently about water, right? The fountain of life in your light, we see light. We see truth. Psalm 89.15, I'm going to have to keep turning around and make sure we got it. Good. Psalm 89.15, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, which we just made, right? A joyful sound. Was it joyful? Did it sound okay? Don't, don't, yeah, don't go there. How, how joyful, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Oh, Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance or the light of your face. Psalm 104.2, you, Lord, are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Now, not only is God himself described as light, but his word as well. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your Holy hill. Proverbs 6.23, are we there? Oh, we're not. Oh, no. There we go. Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And then Israel was to be both the recipient of light but also the spreader of God's light. Isaiah 49.6. I will also make you, Israel, a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, we get this incredible prophecy. We've talked about it already in this series of the coming of Messiah. And the coming of Messiah from Galilee is said to be a coming of light. Here's what it says, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In earlier times, he, God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the northern part of Israel, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And it certainly did when Christ came, amen? And of course, the concept of light is described in spectacular ways when we look at the great and awesome day of the Lord. Let's look at Zechariah, chapter 14, verses five to seven. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day, there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light from God himself. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. This is again in the end. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning, your crying, will be over. And then we see that passage fulfilled in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 21. John describes in his vision what the new Jerusalem will look like. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. All these amazing pictures of, of light in the Old Testament. Now let's look at the continuity of Scripture, how then God is described in similar ways in the New Testament. The continuity of Scripture is so important, right? From our very call to worship this morning, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. 
1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Now, here are all the ways we've already seen in John's gospel, this, the, John's description of, of light being applied to Jesus. Let's look at this. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. John 1.9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What a contrast there, right? And naturally then, in the New Testament, we also read about the antithesis of light. 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Does that surprise us? He's a counterfeit. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's everywhere, isn't it? Now, one last uh, passage in the New Testament, I find this very, very interesting, from Acts chapter 9, the story of the conversion of Saul on the way to Damascus. Very interesting passage. As he was traveling, that's Saul, who later becomes Paul, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly what happened? A light from heaven flashed around him. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight. Now, here's why I find this passage interesting. First of all, what Saul's blinded by, a great light from God, right? It's the glory of the risen Christ who speaks to him, right? Second, he's blinded for three days, three days, as if in darkness in a tomb. But after those three days, we're told that something like scales fell from his eyes, and the imagery of being able to see comes as a result of receiving this new life in Christ. It's so symbolic. And finally, I see in the story of Saul a connection to what we've been studying in John chapter 7 and 8. We have to understand here that Saul was a Pharisee, wasn't he? When he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. And he was just like the antagonists that Jesus has been engaging with in the temple courts in the recent messages we've been looking at. And just as Saul thought he was actually serving God by murdering Christians, remember that? He thought he was actually serving God by persecuting Christians, the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus is now debating with. They too believe that they are serving God by seeking to arrest and eliminate this perceived threat of Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, before we cast judgment against him, because we love to do that, right? We get to read in hindsight and we say, oh, the villains of the story, the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, hindsight is always 20-20, isn't it? We too were once blinded by our sin. We too couldn't see the truth. We too reveled in darkness. We too did everything possible to at at best ignore the light of Christ, at worst, to hate the light of Christ. All of us, everybody in this room, this is what keeps us from becoming prideful and arrogant, doesn't it? And if it were not for God drawing us to himself and for us causing scales to fall off of our eyes, none of us here this morning would be able to see. That's what keeps us humble. If you're here this morning and you've come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, remember it was he who found you just as he found Paul on the road to Damascus. And it was he, by his grace alone, who opened the eyes of Saul, and it's he, by his grace alone, who opened the eyes of our hearts. So let's keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the story. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 8. Sometimes it's just better to read Scripture than listen to me, right? All right. So we are looking at this contentious conversation that took place in the temple courts between Jesus and this crowd of Jews, which, of course, included his greatest enemies, the Pharisees and scribes, who were looking to kill him. And we're going to cover a lot of verses today. See the numbers up there? Anybody shocked? You're like, this is weird. Why aren't we just doing one verse? Okay, it's more than we usually do, and that's partly due to the fact that 
verses 12 to 30 really do make up one important conversation, one unit of thought. But it's also partly due to the fact that John is describing themes in this passage that we have covered multiple times already in the Gospel of John. And this is, this is if some of you guys who have you've studied the original languages, you know this is classic John in the way he writes. He's very different from Paul. Paul is like a lawyer, right? He litigates a, a case from, from A to Z and he, and he walks down this path. John is very different. He likes to repeat ideas. He likes to circle back to things and then layer one on, one on top of the other, each time going a little bit more in detail, a little bit more in depth. So the issues we're dealing with in our text for this morning are not new according to the study that we've been in, but they are some of the most important ideas that face humanity, including us today. They're life and death issues. They're life and death issues. They're eternal issues. The, the issue of, of having forgiveness of sins versus perishing in your sins. That's pretty big stuff. Recall once again, what is John's purpose in writing his gospel? That you may believe, right? That you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that you may have life in his name. So that's why we're, if, you, if you're sitting here and you've been going through the John series, you're like, really, this again? <laughs> it's because John likes to circle back and keep hammering these core principles over and over again. And listen, this chapter focuses on, on truths that are absolutely fundamental to our faith. The things which Jesus claims for himself in this chapter, it's interesting, they have a very different effect on people. Maybe you've noticed this already, but it'll become very, very obvious this week and next week. Some of the people in this crowd who are listening to them, they're able to hear. And they're, they're, they're drawn to saving faith. But then there's the very opposite. For others, his words actually drive them farther away. That's the impact Jesus' words have on people. And that is still true today. We'll come back to that at the end. Now, we're going to have to put our thinking caps on to try to understand where this particular section fits in the whole overarching historical narrative of, of, of this time. So I want you to go take a look at chapter 8 as a whole. And if you were here last week, you know I made the case that verses 1 to 11 don't actually belong here. The story of the adulterous woman brought before Jesus for judgment. It doesn't belong here. The story itself may very well have happened. It was probably carried along by a very reliable oral tradition, but I don't think it belongs in the original text of John's gospel. That means to figure out the flow of history, we have to go back to chapter 7. So go ahead and turn back to chapter 7 for just a moment. And that puts us back at the Feast of Tabernacles again, which we have covered at length. The Feast of Tabernacles, one of the great pilgrimage feasts uh, in the history of Israel. So look at chapter 7 now, verses 45 to 52 at the very end. I call that an off-camera scene because it takes us off of the scene of Jesus' teaching in the temple and gives us a look at the back room of what's happening in Israel. It's it's an inter-family discussion between the Pharisees and the temple guard. So that's sort of off-camera. So if we lay that part aside and we eliminate the story of the adulterous woman in chapter 8, that means what we're about to read connects back to either verse 39 in chapter 7 or verse 44. Okay? Scholars debate which, which of those two is correct, so take your pick. But either way, what Jesus is about to say in the temple courts in our passage for this morning, it comes on the heel of what he just said about living water. This is all one story. I know you, I'm, I'm seeing puzzled faces, okay? I get it, because we're so confused. We always like to think that the Gospels go in this chronological flow, but that's not the way John operates. And again, verses 1 to 11 in chapter 8, it's sort of been inserted there, so it, it confuses us. But what we're going to study today comes on the heels of what Jesus says about living water. Remember he said, if anybody is thirsty, come to me and drink, right? Come to me and drink. And as we saw two Sundays ago, that created great confusion among the crowd. They, they created this sharp division be, between the people. There were some people that said, this is the true prophet that Moses told us about from Deuteronomy 18. Some said, well, maybe he is the Christ. Others were saying, I'm confused about his origins. He's from Galilee. And, and that's not supposed to be with the Messiah, right? And then there's the, the villains in the crowd, his enemies who just want to arrest him and kill him. So the crowd is in, in, a, in a bit of disarray here. And we saw on that Sunday how Jesus' words about living water were made on a very specific day. Now, go back in your minds if you were here a few weeks ago. Jesus talked about living water on what's known as the eighth day 
of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's technically only seven days long, but there's a sacred eighth day, according to Josephus and other historical sources, and that's the most sacred day of all. His words about living water connected to a very famous and very beloved ceremony in Jerusalem at that time, known as the water ceremony. It took place every single day during the seven days of the Feast of the Tabernacle. A priest would, would go down with musicians and, and singers, Levites singing, and he would take a golden pitcher and he would go to the pool of Siloam, just south of the temple, and he would fill the, the golden pitcher with water and then they would sing and dance. Grant, you would love it. Sing and dance uh, back up into the temple and with great pomp and circumstance, they would pour out this water from this golden pitcher at the base of the altar. Really, really a fun thing. Everybody seemed to enjoy it. But it was meant to commemorate something very specific, God's provision of water from the rock that sustained Israel in the, in the wilderness. So they, it was a way of remembering that important event. This was so special that if you read a portion of the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical teachings, it says, quote, he who has not seen the joy of the place of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. This was a big deal for the Jews. And so in that special moment, Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, stands up and he cries out in the temple courts. He says, the feast is over. There's no more water being poured at the altar. But I, I, if you will come to me and drink, will make living water, rivers of living water flow from your innermost being. So there was this amazing connection between the feast and what Jesus said. Now, let me share another special part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Very interesting. As the sunset of each of those seven days of the festival, there was a special lighting, a candle lighting ceremony. The Levites would light four huge menorahs in the temple courts, in the court of the women, right there in the center of the temple courts. These menorahs were so big that, again, historical sources tell us they needed ladders to climb up and to keep pouring oil into these menorahs. Beautiful, right? In fact, I'm going to give you an artist's rendering of what this might have looked like back in the day. See the four circles? Four giant menorahs in each corner of the main court of the women in the temple. Eyewitnesses who write about this say that the glow from these menorahs would light up the whole city of Jerusalem. It was a very special thing. You know, we have our Christmas tree light. We have, we have our own little things. This was a big deal for the Jewish people. And then there was the celebration that took place once the lighting, lighting uh, had begun under the glow of the lights. Again, the Mishnah says this, quote, men of piety and good works dance through the night holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. And so just like the water ceremony, the tradition of this had a very important meaning behind it. The light commemorated, remember the, the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of fire by night, where Yahweh protected and guided Israel during their wilderness wanderings. See, the Jewish people are really good at, at fun ceremonies that remind themselves of God's faithfulness. They do it way better than we do as Christians. Have you noticed that? They've got really fun, really fun holidays. But this is really a big deal, okay? So, as we come to our text for today, go back over to chapter 8, look at verse 12. Take note of the symbolism here. The water had stopped being poured on the altar, and Jesus said, come to me for living water. Now the lights in the temple were no longer being lit, and in this moment, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now do you get it? Do you understand how, what powerful words these were in that moment? Look at verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them, again. So that's how we connect it back to what we saw in, in chapter 7, either verse 39 or 44, again is actually in the Greek text the very first word. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, consider the impact of those words. The Jews in this audience, they know the Hebrew Scriptures, all the metaphors about light, and having just celebrated God's faithfulness to Israel under these spectacular lights in the temple, Jesus now declares, I am the true light. I am the true light. So this is the second of seven great I am statements that John is going to tell us about. First of all, we had Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and now I am the light of the world. And there are so many ways for us to understand what Jesus means in this metaphor of light. But at its core, this is what he means, the promise. That Jesus, he and he alone, 
provides the illumination necessary for human beings to find eternal life. He illuminates that path so that we can find eternal life. That's the core message. It means much more than that, but that's what's at the core here. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't see a thing in the dark. You may not know, about, know this about me. My wife's already laughing. I'm super blind. I, I joke that if you're in like the sixth row or back, I, I don't know who you are. You're just a fuzzy face. Some of you are like, that's good. I like that. Don't look at me. I get it. I cannot see a thing. My eyesight is terrible. In fact, I should wear glasses all the time, but I hate depending on them, so I literally just go through life half blind. But it gets even worse in the dark, and my lovely wife loves to make fun of me about this because I, I, I hit everything in the dark. Is it just, maybe it's just guys? I don't know, but Tanny will go to bed, and I'll stay up late and work, and then I'll, you know, it's later, and I walk into the, the master bedroom, and I will kick everything on the floor. I don't see it. I will literally walk into walls. Ask her about it after the service. I walk into walls. I hurt myself. It's awful. So I appreciate this. We need light. I appreciate light. I need light. Have you ever, anybody ever gone on one of those, those underground cave tours where it gets really dark? It's scary, isn't it? Or maybe if you've been to Israel, you've, you've walked into Hezekiah's tunnel without a light, and it's so pitch black that you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's when you realize how scary darkness is. And then so, as soon as somebody lights a candle or turns on a flashlight, ah, right? It's so, you just realize how important light is in that moment. And that's the way it is spiritually for those who don't know Christ. That darkness that they live in, born into a fallen, dark world, kept in blindness by Satan so that they cannot perceive the truth. So they cannot understand their own human condition. They can't understand the world they live in. And what they need is the light of Christ. They need a candle. They need a flashlight to find their way to eternal life. So Jesus' claim here to be the light of the world means a whole bunch of things. It means that he uniquely sheds light on the truth about us to us. He tells us about who we really are and we read it in scripture and we go, oh my goodness, I need light, right? He tells us about ourselves. He tells us about our human condition, our fallen state, our need for forgiveness. He turns on the flashlight and sheds light on who God is, God the Father is, what he's like. He, he and the Father are one. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He sheds light on who he is as both Savior and Lord. And there's a twofold promise here in verse 12. If you look at it, if we'll just follow that light. Negatively, first of all, he says, we'll never walk in darkness. If we'll just follow the light, we'll never walk in darkness because we've got the ultimate flashlight leading us. So we won't be in darkness. What that means is that we'll be taught of God. We'll be taught of God and the truth will be revealed to us so that darkness is, is dispelled in our life. And then positively he says, if we'll follow him, we will have the light of life, it says in verse 12. That means the light of Christ imparts eternal life to those who will trust in him alone. Amazing promise right there in verse 12. Now, remember again what's being commemorated here, God's faithfulness to Israel in the pillar of cloud and fire. There's another artist rendering that might help you. I love this picture to, to live at this time and to see such a spectacular manifestation of God in this pillar of fire above the moving tabernacle in the midst of the camp of Israel must have been absolutely amazing. But that fire was a constant reminder of God's presence among his people. Constant reminder of his presence. It guided Israel through the wilderness. It protected the people from their enemies. So we have this in the light of Christ, the same threefold promise, presence, protection, and guidance in the light of Christ. We receive this in Jesus. First, his abiding presence by the Spirit, right? Second, his protection from enemies. And ultimately, what we receive from God, uh, Jesus in terms of protection is him sheltering us from the wrath of God. And finally, his guidance through his word, granting us all truth and wisdom as we try to navigate through the craziness of this life. We get those things by the light of Christ, presence, protection, and guidance. Amazing parallel between the Old Testament Israelites in the wilderness, and what we see in Christ today. Now, notice something awesome in Jesus' declaration here. He's not only saying, I'm the light of all who believe. He says, I'm the light of the world. What does he mean by that? Well, this is a claim to be the exclusive source of all spiritual truth for everybody, everywhere. There is no other source of spiritual truth that you're going to go out there and find. Not Buddha, 
(laughs) Not Muhammad, not the Pope in Rome. It's Christ alone. It's a binary choice, right? You either choose Jesus or you choose darkness. There's no third option. So he's the light of the entire world, of all people everywhere. Paul says it well in Colossians 2. In Christ are hidden all the treasures, all of them, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as we read earlier in the prophecies, and I love this picture, and I love singing even this morning about what's to come in the future. One day this world will be filled with the light of Christ. Like the waters cover the sea, all the darkness, all the works of darkness, all the sons of darkness will be cast out, and it will be just light. That's our future together. In that day, all will be light. Jesus, the radiance of the Father, will fill the entire world. And like the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, the earth will be filled with this stunning glow of the light of Christ. Love that picture. In the meantime, here we are on earth, (laughs) right? And and let's be honest, we we need guidance and we need protection and we need God's presence in the here and now, in these uncertain times. So go back to what Scripture says about the light. He is my light. He is my salvation, so who should I fear? No one. His word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What else do I need to navigate this life? Nothing. So Jesus becomes for us the light in which we view everything that is happening in our world right now. If you've been sitting around the last couple weeks on Twitter or on cable news going, what is happening? You're not alone. It's it's falling apart, man. It's circling the drain right now. But we have the light of Christ as our worldview, as our grid in which we filter all things. We can view all things happening in the world and say, it's been, it's been prophesied. We know this is coming. This is not a surprise to us. Even when things look uncertain, even when we're going through difficulty, we have the light of Christ. What a comfort, amen? Now, I think I'm halfway through my message and I've covered one verse. That's a problem. So here's what we're going to do. I wanted to really sort of elaborate on that, that idea of light. And, and guys, if you want a list of those passages that I covered earlier, just ask and spend time meditating on this. This is a great comfort and a great peace in this, isn't there? Yeah? Good. Let me quickly run through the rest of this chapter. Okay, we're going to go, oh, just that many verses. And just make some quick observations because this discussion in the temple is very, very interesting. Again, a very combative discussion. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to declare some things and then he's going to get interrupted. And he's going to go back to his train of thought and they're going to interrupt again. And back and forth and so on. It becomes very much a back and forth, a debate, and it becomes very contentious here. You're going to see why in just a moment. At least seven times in this passage, Jesus is going to go back to this very essential the central truth that he's been talking about from the beginning, that he only says what the Father tells him to say. He represents the Father, and that's it. He only has come to do the Father's will. He'll keep going back to that. And that's why he can claim to be the light of the world, for that very reason, because he is one with the Father, right? Okay, so look now at how Jesus' enemies in the crowd respond to his claim of being the light of the world. They would have understood this, right? The whole... Feast of Tabernacles, the lighting of the menorahs, and now this guy says, I'm the light of the world. How, put yourself in the, in the sandals of the Pharisees right now. Wouldn't you go, question, <laughs> I have questions. Wouldn't you engage in G, with Jesus in, a, in an honest and open discussion about, well, what do you mean? Because I, I want to know what, tr- what is true, and you're making wild claims here, so let's have that discussion. That is not what they do. Are you surprised? The Pharisee said to him, verse 13, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Guys, I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor I have had to deal with this type of response. You go in love to somebody and you point something out in their life or you exhort them in some way and rather than dealing honestly with the issue at hand, what do they want to do? They want to criticize the process because they want to avoid the discussion. Okay, this is what guilty people do. Rather than openly and honestly deal with it, they'll move the conversation away from hard things and quibble over technicalities. Happens all the time. So the Pharisees in front of this crowd, and remember, this is their goal, to try to tarnish the reputation of Jesus in front of the people. That's their ultimate goal. 
They questioned his credibility as a witness in his own defense. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So Jesus is qualified as a witness because of who he is. He speaks of things that he has seen and heard in eternity. Think about that. Frankly, he's the only one that can witness to who he is because he's the only one that has seen these heavenly things. There's nobody else, right, who has firsthand knowledge, so he has to witness on his own behalf. And as he's done throughout the gospel, he's always pointing back to the Father to say, and my Father witnesses on my behalf. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, Jesus says. I'm not judging anyone. Of course, the Pharisees don't understand what he had just declared. They're basing their judgments by what? By mere appearances. Remember what Jesus said? Stop doing that. Stop judging by externals. But that's what they're doing. They're judging according to the flesh. So they peg Jesus as coming from Galilee. Well, that means he must be going back to Galilee. That's what they're thinking in this moment. But they've got it all wrong because they're thinking physically and they're spiritually blind. Now, you might be surprised to hear Jesus say, I'm not judging anyone. Here's what he means by that. He's pointing back to the Father once again. He says, look, I've come to seek and to save the lost, not to judge. There will come a time for that, but while I'm in the flesh, I come to seek and save the lost, not to judge. Verse 16, but even if I do judge, Jesus says, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. In other words, for now, while I'm in the flesh, I won't judge on my own. What I will do is echo the judgments of my Father. Because we're one. We, we agree on all things. Verse 17. Even in your law, Jesus says, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So you want to quibble over technicalities? I'll meet the standard of your law. I witness on my behalf, and my Father witnesses as well. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This discussion is about to take a nasty turn. Have you ever, have you ever had, had a discussion with somebody and everything seems pretty, pretty okay, we're going back and forth, and all of a sudden, here comes the ad hominem attack, right? Here it comes. This is where it gets nasty. Verse 19, so they were saying to him, where is your father? This is designed to be a slap at Jesus, a very public accusation. Where is your father? They know the rumors about Mary's pregnancy. They know that Joseph has passed away at this point, so they're alluding to him as an illegitimate child here, born out of wedlock and now with no true father. And we know that's true because later on in this chapter, they're going to do it again. They're aware of it. And you have to know that in this culture, to question a man's paternity like this was a great insult. Well, again, what they're trying to do is to undermine his legitimacy as a rabbi and as a teacher. And, they're, and, and they must have, in this moment, they must have thought to themselves, oh, I, I, Jesus doesn't know that we know this about him. Let's see how he reacts to this. Let's, let's toss out this accusation against him. Maybe we can get him into a, 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 you know, a more dynamic thing that he ends up looking bad because he loses his temper. Of course, that's not going to happen, right? See, here's the thing about the Pharisees and the scribes. They started to understand that they couldn't out-argue Jesus. And they couldn't trap him in his words. So they, they try a couple different ways. They can try to intimidate him, and if that isn't going to work, they're going to try to mock him in front of the crowds to make him look bad. They've got all these different levels of sin that they go through in this. But look, Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. See, Jesus knows they're not really interested in knowing about his father. This was a political game that they're playing at this point. They're trying to score cheap points in front of the crowd. So Jesus says, in effect, look, you cannot recognize the promised Messiah standing right in front of you right now. Why? Because you, the false shepherds of Israel, you have never known Yahweh. Ouch. Can you imagine saying that to the Pharisees and the scribes? You'll never see the Messiah. He's right in front of you, but you can't see it. You're spiritually blind. You have never known God. Wow. Wow. The fact is they don't have spiritual eyes to see the light. That is, which is born of flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. These guys are fleshly, so they don't see it. What they need is living water, right? They need to be born again so that the scales will fall off their eyes and they see, but they can't see right now. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, 
as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, does that seem like a weird place to suddenly stop and say, by the way, this is where that happened? Seems like a very strange note in John's gospel, but he has a point here. Jesus has just made this explosive and dangerous claim, not just about himself, but he said to the the Pharisees and scribes, and you don't know God. So John pauses at this moment to just say, look how amazing it is that he hasn't been arrested because God's sovereign over this situation. Where is he speaking? In the court of the women, right there in the center of the temple, what John calls the treasury. That's the place where all the uh, offering boxes were put uh, in the temple uh, courts. It's the same courtyard where those menorahs were lit that he's speaking. It's also the same courtyard, the hall where the Sanhedrin met was right there off the court of the women. It's, it's, I could throw a rock. From where Jesus is standing here, I could throw a rock and hit the place where the Sanhedrin is gathering. And yet they don't arrest him. If there was ever a convenient time to arrest him, this would have been it. John's making a point here about the sovereign will of God in terms of the timing of the cross. Nothing is going to happen to Jesus until the perfect time. God is in control of all that. That's, that's why verse 20, I think, is stuck there in the middle. Verse 21. Then he said to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What a serious warning, right? I'm going away, an obvious reference to his death. And when he's gone, these religious Jews will look for him, but they won't find him. And worst of all, they will go on to die in their sins. Now, that phrase, you will seek me, doesn't mean, Jesus is not indicating here that all the Pharisees and the scribes will seek after Jesus after the cross and believe in him. That's not what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Look, once I'm gone, you know what you're going to keep doing? You'll keep looking for your Messiah. You'll keep thinking, well, he's got to come soon. He's going to come and rescue Israel, but you will be seeking nothing but a phantom because I've already come. I've been right here in front of you and you've rejected me and you'll die in your sins. Wow. Verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is another slap. This is another insult at Jesus. His enemies raise the possibility, think of this, that this guy is so crazy. He is so filled with, today we'd say, he's a conspiracy theorist, right? He's so nuts all these wild claims about himself that maybe suicide is what he's planning. That's why we can't go, because he'll end up in hell. That was the belief, of course, in Jewish circles. You commit suicide, you go to the lowest rung of Hades. So their logic, it's interesting, their logic is, well, if Jesus is going to a place that we can't follow, then in our minds, Jesus must be going to hell, because surely we're going to heaven. I mean, that was the thinking, we're Jews. Not only that, but we're Pharisees. We're the religious elite. Of course we go to heaven. So if he's going somewhere eternally that we can't come, he must be going to hell. Maybe he's going to kill himself. That's their logic. Now, it's true that they have two different destinies, but it's completely opposite of what they're thinking here. Verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for you, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's no surprise that they can't recognize the Messiah. Everything that he speaks about has a heavenly origin. Everything, right? From eternity past, outside the physical world. And in contrast, these men are earthly, they're fleshly, they are blind, and their destination eternally is below. That's the point Jesus is making here. And he warns them a second time. And this is an important warning. Because look, the he that you see in verse 24, that's added into our English Bibles. It's not in the Greek text. Jesus is using the name of God here. The great I am. And and this would not have been missed by his opponents. Again, Jesus is claiming deity here, right? He's using the I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Wait, you mean the I am of Moses' day from the burning bush? Yahweh? You're saying you're Yahweh? Yeah, unless you believe that I am, 
you will die in your sins. This is a claim to deity, right? So catch this. They claim that Jesus is so wildly off base that he's going to go out and commit suicide. And in response to that, Jesus triples down, quadruples down, and says, I'm God. What a moment. What a moment. You guys, you got to, I mean, it gives me chills. It gives me chills, the, the confrontation here. They, they're like, you're, gonna, you're so nuts, you're going to go off and kill you. Jesus says, well, I'm God. If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. This is the moment. We talked about it, I don't know, months ago. You've got to make a choice. Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? Those are the only two choices. So choose wisely. Now, think about how Jesus views all this. Remember, he knows the hearts of these men he's talking to. He knows their eternal destination, yet he warns them, and he warns them again. He desires that none should perish. If you don't believe that I am who I claim to be, you're going to die in your sins, but you will have no one but yourself to blame. You will not have an advocate on your side when you stand before the judgment seat of God. There will be a prosecutor, but you'll have no defense. The day of grace will not last forever, friends. We know that to be true. That's our urgency to share the gospel. The day of grace will not last forever. And there's a lot at stake here. The second a man or woman passes from this life into eternity without a sacrifice for sin, it's too late. They're lost forever. There's a lot at stake here. So Jesus drops the I am, and here's how they react. This cracks me up. Verse 25. They're saying to him, who are you? It's not really a question. It's more of a sarcastic, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can stand there and say, if we don't believe in you, we'll die in our sins. Do you not know who we are? This is an amazing confrontation here. Jesus said to them what I've been saying to you from the very beginning, right? He's been saying this over and over again, who he is. They just don't have ears to hear. Can you see the spiritual blindness? Verse 26, Jesus says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. Here he goes, back to the Father. And the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father, Yahweh. Wow, points back to the Father again. And then Jesus lays on them the ultimate sign of his obedience to the Father. Verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Same construction in the Greek. When you lift me up, you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Wow. What a statement. This is our life as Christians as well, right? He never leaves us. So we do things that please him. But, but Jesus makes this great statement about, about his father. It's the lifting up of the Son of Man. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection that will be the one great and final sign that ultimately vindicates Jesus as the Messiah. The sign that proves that what he's been claiming all along is true, that he has acted in perfect obedience to the Father. But by then, it's too late for these men. For they will have made the decision to crucify the Lord of glory and seal their eternal fate. Wow. And then we'll just wrap up verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And this is, so, this, this is what's so interesting. I have no doubt that some people in the crowd that day heard this exchange and said, that is the Messiah. But what we're going to find out in the weeks to come is that some of these that claim to believe, their belief gets pretty dubious pretty quickly. That's the teaser. You've got to come back for next Sunday. All right, a couple thoughts as we wrap up. As I shared earlier, look how Jesus' claims and declarations separate people. How they have different effects on people. Some hear him and they're granted the ability to recognize the light. And they trust in him as Messiah and they're born again. They receive what he said in verse 12. They receive the light of life. And others, those whose sinful motives are exposed by his words, their desire is just to put out this light and to maintain their own power and status before the people. Two completely different responses. Does that surprise us? Should it surprise us? Let me go back to one of the verses I showed earlier. Back in John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Did we not see that with the Pharisees and scribes? 
blind to it. They misinterpret everything Jesus says. The light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There were some people in that crowd that day that just said, I don't want this light. I like my darkness. I like walking in darkness. I love my sin. I don't want any part of that light. Still happening today, isn't it? And let this be a lesson and a reminder to us as we seek to share our faith out there in the world with people who are blind, spiritually blind. They can't see. Guys, we will never argue people into the kingdom. I know we want to try, and I know it's good to have good, strong apologetics, but we're not going to argue people into the kingdom of God. As we faithfully share, ultimately, we have to trust that God does the work, that his sovereign will over salvation is what will reign. So we can go out there and we can give really amazing testimonies and present the case really, really well. Some people are still going to be blinded and hardened in their hearts. And our words will actually drive them away. We're like, wait, that was a great presentation. What went wrong? But it drives them away. Others will be drawn in. And we'll go, man, I, I botched that whole presentation. Yet a person was drawn in and they were saved because God's sovereign over that. Our role is simply to be faithful, to proclaim the truth and pray. Pray that God would remove the scales from people's eyes so that they can see, so the truth becomes obvious to them. And that's just, it's just a privilege that we have, that God would use us in that process, right? That, that, that we get to participate in seeing people get saved for all eternity. It's just a privilege, but all glory goes to him, right? Now, you may think, as a Christian, there's nothing in this passage for me today. We have a tendency to do that, right? We're always, all right, give me the application. What am I supposed to take home? You may think, all right, fine, more, more gospel. Thanks, John. The gospel again? <laughs> we all have a tendency to do that, right? You're like, I'm already saved. Do I need to keep hearing this? Can I get some practical teaching here? I need help with my marriage. I'm struggling with my kids. I'm dealing with repetitive sin. Can I get some help on those things? Let me make an observation here. Just a quick observation. We, at the elder table, we talk about this over and over again, week after week. When we see our sheep, whom we love, struggling with these things, 95% of the time, the issue is less about practical instruction for living and far more about the depth of your spiritual walk. That's why we need to keep hearing more about the gospel over and over again. In other words, what you and I need is not so much, well, here's a list of five things you can try to improve your life. What we really need is what we sang about this morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand his kindness to you. Strive to grasp the depth of the grace that he's lavished upon you. Abide with him throughout your day. Study his word. Pray without ceasing. Grow in your knowledge of him and grow in your experience of him. That's really what we need. We need the gospel over and over again. Those things, if you, those things I just listed, if you did those, that would do more for your marriage and more for your parenting and more for your resisting sin than all the practical five steps to improve your life. That's why John keeps circling back to these same themes, why they're so important. And if you're not sure about any of that stuff, you're like, I don't know what you're saying now, Jeff. I don't understand what it means to walk with Christ. Just ask. There's a bunch of people here that would love to help you with that. So we started this morning with Scripture, and I want to end there with some more passages. In the New Testament, this concept of light impacts the way we walk as believers. So let me just share a couple things. Our life as disciples. Ephesians 5.8. What a great truth. You were formerly darkness. Did you know that? If you've forgotten that, remember it. If you've been in the church a long time, you're like, I can't remember that. Well, remember it. It's important. You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So what? Walk as children of light. Walk in that light. First Thessalonians. Oops. Ooh, I have, a, I have a back button. That's exciting. That was weird. Sorry. First Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. What a great practical teaching that is. We're not like the rest of the world, sleepy. We see what's going on because we're alert. We're sober about the things that are happening. We have our worldview set. 
What about our fellowship? 1 John 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with God, fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Don't walk in the darkness. Don't become a liar. Walk in the light. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides, makes his dwelling in the light. So it's not just God who is light, but it's, this light is what permeates our fellowship with our fellow believers. A reminder of who we are, 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, people. You're a chosen race of people. A royal priesthood. You're all priests. <laughs> you are. You're all ministers of God. You're all, we so forget this. Like, nope, I just sit in the back of the room. No, we're priests. We're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then just wrapping up with this, our mission Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says in Philippians. Work it out, day to day. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wait, what? For his good pleasure, he's working in you to sanctify you. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. This is our world, right? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's our mission. That's our calling, folks, to walk in the light of Christ, to pursue the light of fellowship with other believers, especially in the local church, to embrace our identity as the people of God who live together in the light, and then to go out into our world armed with the gospel, reflecting the only source of light and spiritual truth there is, and us, we appear as mini lights of him, reflecting that source in the darkness of the world. Don't you dare wake up tomorrow and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Walk in the light. Have fellowship in the light. Be identified as one who reflects the light of Christ. May we have ears to hear those truths this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is that you've called us to your light, that you are light and that you have, by your grace, gone out and drawn us to yourself. And you've said, here I am. I am the light. Come, drink. Come, embrace the light. Walk in this light. I will give you all the power that you need to be sanctified in this lifetime. All the power that you need to fulfill the mission I have for you. God, we we confess that we often fail at this. And there's even more mercy and grace for that. But we we often fall so short, Lord, of, of seeing these truths and living them out week to week, day to day, moment by moment. Father, we need your your forgiveness as we confess that truth that we fail so often. And we need your encouragement and your hope, Lord, that you are at work in us. So, Lord, I pray that Oak Hill, I pray for every believer here this morning that that even this week we'd make a change, that we would begin to walk in this powerful light that you have lavished upon us. Help us to do that, Lord, for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen.